Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. It's this weird in-between where we both have to have that scientific literacy, trust the information in front of us, and also understand that we are still missing so much information. That's a hard narrative to preach. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Lots to talk about today, including, we know, the felt need that most of you are expressing to us in email and on social media to discuss the protests restrictions related to COVID-19. So we'll do that. We'll also talk about the steps toward what's next, what the experts are telling us on what benchmarks we need to reach in order to loosen the restrictions that we're living under right now. And we'll end, as always, with what we're thinking about outside of politics to the extent that we can. But first, we have an exciting announcement. We will be back on Hot Mic this Wednesday at 5 o'clock Eastern with a community viewing of our beloved governor, Andy Bashir's daily press briefing. We thought it would be fun to share with all of you who are in Kentucky or outside of Kentucky how we watch and talk through and think about these daily press briefings. So join us on Hot Mic this Wednesday at 5 o'clock Central for Governor Andy Bashir's daily COVID-19 press briefing. And if you have not joined us on Hot Mic before, but find yourself suddenly with time on your hands and or the desire to see other human beings outside of a Zoom meeting, uh, this is a great way to join together and watch something. And you can find instructions for joining us in the show notes. This weekend was a lot. We had the protest. We had a devastating shooting in Canada 
and we had the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. So let's start with the protest, which happened mostly on Saturday across seven states. People are protesting the economic shutdown. They're ready to fire it all back up again. What do you think about that, Beth? Well, I'd like to start with the fact that it is happening in seven states that are governed by both Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would like to continue the discussion that we began last week in terms of how these protests are a mishmash of issues under a mishmash of labels and complaints. Many, many inconsistent. (laughs) Many inconsistent with one another, which is not at all surprising. And which, look, we all do. I mean, we all hold beliefs that are not completely internally consistent. I don't love the way the word liberty is being tossed around casually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that if you feel that your liberty is being restrained right now in a way that's unconstitutional... You've almost certainly not spent much time in a country in the world where liberty is restricted in a real way mm-hmm. and perhaps could use a review of history. And I understand that you're frustrated. I totally get it. We're all frustrated. Again, nobody wants this. Nobody. And at the same time, I just think that we are Taking the idea of American citizenship to such a place, and forgive me, because I'm going to be not nuanced for a second, because my feelings about this are not very nuanced. We have just waltzed into spoiled brat territory in a way that I can hardly stand. We're acting as though there is no responsibility attendant to the citizenship that we hold here in the United States. And I just, it really bugs me. I can probably find some areas of agreement on individual restrictions in states that I think have gone too far, are not so effective, or are just unwise. But the idea that you would stand in a street with a sign that says you are ready to have a haircut when 40-some thousand Americans have died, which is like inching towards 70% of the number of Americans we lost over a period of years during the Vietnam War— I just think that we have really lost the plot on what it means to be a citizen of this country. Well, you beat me to it. I was going to um, ask you if if you were implying that not being able to get a haircut is a violation, um, not a violation of our constitutional liberties, which is what I hear you saying. And I think you're really right about that. I think it is important to point out that just like with the Tea Party, this is not a grassroots uprising of citizens who were really just, you know, participating in some sort of online salon where they were really discussing and working through the intellectual ramifications of the economic shutdown. Okay, like that's not what's happening. These were not town halls or some sort of historical following of our founding fathers and founding mothers and their debates. Okay, that's not what this is. These are groups largely organized by well-funded conservative groups who give them tools, who give them advice, who help them form Facebook groups, and who are accelerated by the rhetoric coming from the president of the United States with tweets and press conferences and just general spouting off about how they need to be liberated and, you know, basically implying that the government, the state governments, after saying repeatedly that the state governments are in charge, he's now saying that the implying that the state governments are out to get them because he just doesn't know how to be any other way except railing against the government, even when he's the head of it. And so I think, you know, always remembering that there are groups that benefit from this type of unrest, who feed this type of unrest. There was an article, I believe, in the Washington Post about how this is like the best thing the NRA's ever asked for, because it's that fear, it's that chaos, it's the a gun is the only answer to this, they're trying to take away your liberty, you need a gun to protect your liberty. And guess what? People profit, not just the NRA, groups profit when people buy guns. Groups profit when they have the access to 
people's cell phones and phone numbers and Facebook profiles through this type of organizing, okay? So I think that that's just always so important to keep in mind is that this is not some sort of grassroots uprising, but this these are people who are easily preyed upon in moments of fear and unrest, which we are most certainly experiencing, but who are preyed upon and are used by other groups and other organizations to gain political power and reap financial reward. So now that I have lacked grace, I'll try to get a little bit back and say that I understand that if you are especially the owner of a small business and you're already really frustrated and you're looking around the world saying, well, if that can be open, why can't I be open? I totally understand how you start to see some Facebook posts about not being afraid and opening things up and getting your rights back. And you say, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, this is wrong. I totally understand how that happens. It is, incidentally, much the way a virus spreads, right? You plant a few things that have enough traction behind them to start to gather people up, and it spreads from there. I also understand how it doesn't look great to have governors having to say, you are welcome to protest, but you can't do it in this particular way. That is hard because the nature of protest is usually doing it in the way they say don't do it. In this instance, what makes it so challenging, and I think this is always true, but not so directly, you don't act in isolation. You are making choices not just for yourself, right? Because you could say, well, I'm not afraid to get the virus. I welcome it. I've seen lots of moms with kids in these protests saying things like that. We're not scared to get it. We think we're strong enough to handle it. We think that immunity will help the population. So keep your poison vaccines, Bill Gates, that kind of rhetoric. Okay. Well, you can choose that. Um, But if you choose that, even if you get sick, you're burdening the healthcare system, which can't handle a whole lot more in certain areas of the country. And you could spread it to people who aren't strong enough to fight it. And I just don't understand our unwillingness to pause for a second And decide that in this one instance, even if I personally think that the fact that a liquor store gets to be open and my small business doesn't is grossly unfair, grossly unfair, that I should protest in a way that charges society at such a high price. If you want to protest, do it in the drive-thru way. There are so many ways to express your feelings about this, and you should. That makes our country good. It is important for people to express their feelings. But man, showing up in these large gatherings that we just statistically know are going to get people sick and probably killed, that is where my inability to be grace-filled towards these folks bubbles over. Well, and if you want to protest, then why don't you protest the lack of testing that's actually preventing us from opening back up? We're going to talk about this in the main segment about what is required to really start our economy back up. Because here's the thing that they're learning in other parts of the world. If people do not feel safe, it does not matter if you open your small business back up. They will not come. And 75% of Americans, according to most polls, are concerned about opening back up too quickly. People are afraid. And you might channel your fear into a protest. But that does not mean that if you get what you want, and everything opens back up, that everyone is going to stop being afraid. They're not. What's going to calm people's fears is better information through testing, better outcomes through treatment, and better prevention through vaccines. That's it. It's not some incredibly complex calculus. That's what's going to do it. And all the protests in the world are not going to change that. So a listener sent us, we've gotten several versions of this, but I thought this one was particularly complete, a Facebook post that is circulating. And and I thought, Sarah, if you're willing to, it might be good for us to just go through this Facebook post to, to meet the arguments that people are encountering out there. So it begins, when the state tells you it's safe to go to Home Depot to buy a sponge, but dangerous to go and buy a flower, it's not about your health. 
When the state shuts down millions of private businesses but doesn't lay off a single government employee, it's not about your health. When the state bans dentists because it's unsafe but deems abortion visits safe, it's not about your health. When the state prevents you from buying cucumber seeds because it's dangerous but allows in-person lottery ticket sales, it's not about your health. When the state tells you it's dangerous to go golf alone, fish alone, or be in a motorboat alone, but the governor can get his stage makeup done and hair done for five TV appearances a week, it's not about your health. When the state puts you in a jail cell for walking in a park with your child because it's too dangerous but lets criminals out of jail cells for their health, it's not about your health. When the state tells you it's too dangerous to get treated by a doctor of chiropractic or physical therapy treatments yet deems a liquor store essential, it's not about your health. And it goes on and on. And I just wonder if we could take this apart a little bit because I I know this is what we're all living in our Facebook communities or Twitter or Instagram or just among people that you know. So, Sarah, what are your thoughts? I mean, that it's not true. (laughs) So many of those are just not true. I mean... The idea that people are getting arrested for going to parks, but criminals are walking free. It's not true. No one's getting arrested specifically because they don't want people in jails, which are rife for coronavirus spread, which is why they are letting nonviolent offenders or older offenders out. The idea that, oh, you can't go to the chiropractor, but you can go to a liquor store. Yes, because if you don't go to a chiropractor, you're not going to end up in the emergency room. But if you are withdrawing from alcohol, you might therefore overburdening our health resources. I mean, there's just there's an answer to a lot of these. And it's so easy to cherry pick and and or just lie about the actual consequences or the actual businesses that are being deemed essential and that aren't. And to to put it all together in a meme and make it sound just so clear that it's really not about your health. You know, it's it's disingenuous. It's disinformation. And It really needs to be shut down. It's just hard to know how to shut that down, though. And I think, you know, one thing that I I don't mean individually, I mean, via Facebook. (laughs) I think they need to do a better job. And they're trying to step it up about not allowing for posts that share misinformation about the coronavirus or about social distancing or about essential business. I mean, there are three or four things in there, maybe more, that are clearly false that should be flagged and not be allowed to be shared. Yeah, I'll just say about the abortion one, because this comes up all the time, that if you imagine the opposite, it helps. So when I think about what would happen if Governor Bashir allowed churches to have services right now, everything else is the same, but people can go to church and have services. And then the hotspots start to creep up around those services. I think the memes would say The government knows this is dangerous, but they want Christians to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that if abortion clinics were closed and then things started to reopen and states said, well, if you weren't able to get an abortion during this time, you can now. And a bunch of people were having abortions later in pregnancies. Then we would have memes that tell us that what the government wanted, obviously, was infanticide. You know, Mm -hmm. and so that's how I always think about this. When I even think about like how frustrated I am that we can't go anywhere, I try to tell myself, what if we had a draft right now? If you think this restricts your liberty, what if you were called to leave your home, not stay in it, but to leave it, to go halfway around the world to fight in a war that you don't understand? That feels much more restrictive of liberty to me than being asked to stay in my house. There are things I can fight with. The sectioning off of stores, certain areas in stores, makes less sense to me than restricting the number of people who are allowed to be in a store at a time. But we can Monday morning quarterback all day people who have much better information than we do and who are living this every day and who have to tell us every day how many people in their state died from it. So I try not to do that. Again, I don't think this means you have to think everything that's happening is wonderful. No one does. But I I think it's important to meet these posts. I have been engaging in a lot more back and forth politically on Facebook than I ever have during all this because of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper. And I feel like here I am, a white woman. This is the time to put all my chips in and to try to fight this. Little things like a person I love dearly posted an article about the cult of Andy Bashir, And I read the article and then I commented and said, I love you. And I think he's doing a great job. 
And I'm going to do more of that because I do think we need to call these things out, especially when people are sharing things that are just not true. So beyond the protest this weekend, this was a very difficult Sunday. First in Canada, in the Nova Scotia region, in one of the rural communities there, Canada experienced one of its worst mass shooting in its history. Over the course of 14 hours, a gunman killed at least 16 people, including a police officer who was the mother of two children. The perpetrator was a 51-year-old denturist, and they're still trying to figure out what caused this. I will be honest, I don't know about you, Beth, but the first thing I thought about was the fact that it was April 20th, which was the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, and it's also the anniversary of Waco and Ruby Ridge, and has become a pretty infamous date among right-wing extremists and terrorists across the world, because that was also the day that Oklahoma City was trying to figure out a new way to memorialize the bombing there that happened 25 years ago. Yeah, I don't know a lot about that particular movement in Canada, uh, but I also had kind of a chill about the, the timing. In addition to just being very sad for Canada, you know, having to manage something like mm-hmm. that in the midst of something like we're already living through, just ha- there's there's an overload I'm really interested. I've been reading a lot from virologists, epidemiologists. I'm interested now in reading more psychologists helping us understand, like, how much can we take and and what is this doing to the way people process information like this? Because I, I felt this news in a pretty harsh way for a place that's so far away from me and for a number that unfortunately in American mass shooting terms is is rather low compared to what we've been accustomed to. But sending so much love to the people of Canada through this is just horrible. And so at the same time, the people of Oklahoma City were trying to figure out how to memorialize the 168 lives lost, including 19 children, without being able to gather in person. And so what they did was put together a memorial program that was broadcast in the community and is available on the Oklahoma City Memorial website. And we wanted to share an excerpt from Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt. Um, just as Beth was talking about earlier, how fear can and extremism can spread like a virus, he had some really powerful takeaways about the lessons that we can learn from that tragedy. The bombing was ultimately an act of extremist political violence made possible through dehumanization. The journey to such an act begins with thoughts. Those thoughts become words. And like a virus, those words are heard by others and they pull out of the listener the thoughts and words that their better nature had previously rejected. Soon, one carrier becomes many and an ecosystem is created where ideas once considered absurd are treated with credibility. Blowing up an office building full of civilians and children requires someone to walk down that dark path. It's a path humanity has walked down too many times before. It is a path of dehumanization. And even though it ends with the most evil and horrific acts imaginable, that path is largely lined with the simplest gesture we have, words. And if you are not hearing those echoes again in our current political discourse, I ask you to listen harder. Evil acts like the one that occurred behind me depend on the triumph of dehumanization. The idea, first perpetuated through words, that you're different than me, that your motivations are not pure, that you are my enemy, the enemy of my people, and that this struggle is so real that all tactics must be on the table. To accept such dehumanization and to reject all the things that we share in common, the reality that we all love, we all have families, we're all seeking virtually the same outcome, requires a remarkable amount of delusion. But we as humans have proven ourselves time and time again capable of such delusion. And we pay a terrible price time and time again. I ask you to consider this morning that this sacred place is a sober reminder that humanity is in fact capable of such evil things, even here in the United States, even here in Oklahoma and that we all have an obligation to speak up and to reject words of dehumanization, words that divide us, words that cast others as our enemy. 
Right now, I hear such words coming out of the mouths of some of the most prominent people in our country, and I see them echoed in daily life by those who know better. We should know how this story ends. But let this place be a reminder. We must have better conversations. We must reject dehumanization. We must love one another. Those are the lessons I hope we will continue to carry from this event today and all the days that lie ahead. We will be talking more about this tragedy at another time, and we can't really tell you when. We had planned to do a pretty deep dive on it this month, but did feel that that would be adding trauma to a moment that has plenty of trauma. So if you've read the book that was part of the Pantsuit Politics Book Club, don't fear. We will come back to it. It just didn't feel like the right thing to do right now, but we are holding space around this and all of the people who were directly and indirectly impacted by what happened in Oklahoma City. And as always, we wanted to continue to share the compliments for local leaders that you guys have been sending. Erin from Midland, Texas, emailed us about her mayor, Patrick Payton. Midland is really struggling, not just from the coronavirus, but the collapse of the oil market, which is essential to the economy in Midland. Aaron says that Mayor Payton has been calming fears and leading their city with a steady hand through this dual crisis. Longtime listener Liz in Pennsylvania sent some love to the refreshingly boring and competent in the best of way governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, um, and Secretary of Health there, Dr. Rachel Devine, who Liz points out is transgender and it's just not a thing. Um, she is a consummate, respected professional who's been confirmed to roles in our public health system multiple times. And what a beautiful showing of visibility for the trans community um, in this important critical player in Pennsylvania's fight against coronavirus. She also praised her local Montgomery County, Pennsylvania Commissioner Val Arkush, who's a physician. Liz says she took very decisive action early in the process by working with state and school officials to shut down our county when we had a small but growing number of cases. It is hard to be the first one to make a decision, but she did, and she did it definitively and clearly and has been a steady presence at her daily news conferences as well, and she led the vanguard for the rest of the collar counties around Philadelphia to follow suit. We also heard from Hannah, who emailed us to praise Jackson, Tennessee Mayor Scott Conger. They had had a the same mayor for a very long time, so Mayor Conger is new, and Hannah says that he's a gem. She says he updates us every day. He's witty and takes no shit. He's also kind and collected, and he's been working hard to do what the governor hasn't done. She said apparently a lot of mayors in Tennessee are in a group conference call to figure out how to handle it. I'm a nurse and married to someone with compromised immune system, so I feel particularly taken care of and grateful for his leadership in this time. And finally, for today, Elizabeth wants to shout endless praise from her virtual rooftop about the incredible women leading the charge against COVID-19 in Canada. Ten of the top medical officers that they see on their televisions every day are women, alongside the prime minister and premiers who are all men. These women lead at the municipal, provincial, and federal levels. She says, federally, our chief medical officer and minister of health are women, Dr. Teresa Tam and Patty Hadju. Seven of the 13 provincial territorial chief medical officers are women, and three of the biggest cities in Canada also have women at their medical helms. Canada, you are doing something right in your STEM education. She says each of them faces a different daily situation as the pandemic varies so greatly by province, but each has delivered information clearly, calmly, and humanely to the people living in their jurisdiction every single day. She especially wants to commend Dr. Bonnie Henry for her work. Her province's top doctor, British Columbia, is successfully flattening the curve so far, and much of it is due to her foresight and planning and her calm, pragmatic leadership. Thank you all so much for sharing your praise for the people who are doing their best where you are. We love reading these messages and sharing them. And next up, we are going to talk about the way forward. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. 
Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. We're talking about in the first segment, we are all anxious to figure out what comes next. And, you know, the protest across several states this weekend uh, seemed to imply that we're just going to flip a switch and go back to life as normal. But we have been looking at lots of experts from the American Enterprise Institute's report to a really great article in The New York Times this weekend with over 20 experts in public health and epidemiology to figure out what it's going to look like as we continue through this global pandemic. And I think the the first overall consensus is this, it's not going to be a light switch, that's for sure. It's going to be a gradual reopening that will most likely happen in several phases over months of time. I think I heard on Start Here, ABC's daily podcast, someone saying, well, there wasn't a gradual shutdown, so why can't there be a gradual reopening? And that calls to mind for me something that we're hearing from a lot of listeners, which is that this whole crisis is a good light on the fact that we need better scientific literacy in our country. Mm. It's hard to understand in a vacuum. If you start to follow the science, that gradual reopening is very consistent with this entire idea of flattening the curve, right? You reopen gradually because you're still thinking about the most vulnerable populations and you're still thinking about the capacity of the healthcare system to meet the number of people who have the virus. And until we know who has it and where it is, we have all of those worst case scenarios lurking around about what we can handle if suddenly everyone's back in the world running into each other and transferring this thing. 
it's this weird in-between where we both have to, you know, have that scientific literacy, trust the information in front of us, and also understand that we are still missing so much information. That's a hard narrative to preach. Trust the data. We're missing so much data. Well, which is it? You mm-hmm. know, I think that that's some of the difficulty and the tension you feel in this conversation is we're asking people to trust the experts and trust what they're telling us while also saying repeatedly, we don't have all the information. And I think, you you know, the, the human instinct is when there's not all the information to not trust what you're telling us to do. And I think that's really the fine line that we're trying to walk right now um, as a country is that we understand that we have good data on how flattening the curve works in other global pandemics and with other coronaviruses, but we're still missing so much information about this particular pandemic and this particular coronavirus, especially because we are lacking so much testing. And that to me is like the key is that we are going to have to open back up in phases. But the, the number one most important thing to move to the next phase where we can start to reopen is that we have to see that the cases are stabilizing or decreasing. And we cannot do that. We cannot establish what's actually happening with the cases if we don't have enough testing. And the volume of testing that experts believe we need to feel confident about the data, because to your point, Sarah, all the data tells us right now is this is pretty bad. It's worse than the flu. It's devastating when it gets in a shared space. And it's probably worse than we know, right? That's We have to trust the data that it's pretty bad and that we don't know exactly how bad. So the experts say that we need something on the order of 5 million tests a day in the United States being conducted to get us to a place where we can have confidence in what the numbers are telling us happens next. And we are doing a lot less than a million tests a day in the United States. Something like 150,000 is the number that I've seen floating around. There are still millions and millions of Americans who have not been exposed to the virus. And so any phased in reopening risks further flare-ups. And the only way to not only establish if we're even ready to reopen, but to establish that we are prepared to contain Any flare-ups as we move forward is through testing. There's that special word again. The fact that governors are basically begging at this point, like there's only so much state by state that we can do to get testing to where we need it to be. I think that most governors are doing everything in their capacity to get us there. But the fact that we just don't have a federal response to ratchet up testing beyond just saying over and over again, even though it's not true that everybody can get testing, is, you know, that again, that's what we should be protesting. If we want off, we're all so anxious to protest and get back to work, then that's what we should be focusing on. Because the reason that the tests are so hard to get apparently is like the particular swabs that are needed are just not being manufactured at, at a rate high enough to be able to have the test out there in the world. Our governor talks in Kentucky about how we have testing capacity in that we have people who are ready to sit in the lab and read the results. It is the raw materials of the test that we can't get as a state right now. And that is where the federal response is so important because governors cannot issue executive orders forcing large companies to manufacture that stuff. Small companies are doing their best, but you're talking about asking people to figure out a new supply chain. There's a really wonderful excerpt in Axios today about, and we'll put a link to the full piece in the show notes, about how in some ways what coronavirus is demonstrating about our economy is that we don't build enough in America anymore. The point is there are parts of this that are very, very hard. It is very hard to understand what's going on with a brand new strain of this virus. It's very hard to know how to treat it. It's very hard to understand immunity following it, if that exists, how we know it exists, if it does. What shouldn't be that hard is making enough masks and manufacturing enough gloves and having the swabs for these tests. But America is not built to make that stuff anymore. And that's something that we really have to think about going forward. 
So let's say we do get our testing capacity up and we have several areas of the country and several states that are exhibiting a decline in cases for two weeks at least and that we start to think about opening back up. So what's that going to look like? It's going to look like still a lot of social distancing measures in place that the most at risk populations would still probably have to seclude themselves that we would be li- limiting gatherings to maybe a little bit bigger but not much bigger that we're not shaking hands we're still wearing masks businesses schools daycares those places of tight social contact would have to be very very careful, especially with nursing homes, long-term care facilities that have shown themselves to be particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus. So we probably wouldn't be able to visit people in long-term care facilities and prisons for a long time, and that is harsh and hard. We're probably looking at having to have our temperature taken as we walk into a lot of places. I have truly no idea what this looks like in the restaurant space. I've read a lot of articles Mm -hmm. about that. There is talk of pushing tables farther from one another, additional food safety, things like that. But it is really hard to know when we'll be able to have a normal dining out experience again, because in phase one, it just sounds to me like that that is going to be a struggle. So how do we get to move to phase three, where we are really opening back up where we can scale up both school openings, business openings, um, and social gathering. And really, the key to that is a vaccine, a vaccine that has been developed and tested and authorized, and not only is safe, but is able to be manufactured on a mass level. This, from most experts, looks more like a rollout to healthcare professionals and then to the general public once that manufacturing capability has been built up. Can I say for a second how important I think it is that we not rush this process? I know that we want this vaccine soon because we all want to get back out there. Can you imagine what happens if a vaccine is sold and marketed and used before we know scientifically that it is both effective and safe? Can you imagine what happens if a single side effect that we didn't know and warn people about in advance starts to manifest. If we think about the conspiracy theory driven world that we're inhabiting right now, I know that we we love to talk about like, let's get all the bureaucracy out of the way, scientific and governmental and otherwise, and get this thing to market. It is so dangerous to push our scientists to get this thing to market before it's ready. And so I just want to say, if you are a person working on this out there, just from one mom in Kentucky, take your time, get it right and understand that we support you because I am I am more fearful of a vaccine hitting the country before that vaccine is safe and effective than having to do this longer. Well, and this will be a global issue, a globally coordinated um, vaccine production. It's definitely, most certainly, a globally coordinated research endeavor. You know, there's a part of me that thinks, well, one easy way to deal with some of that would just becoming more and more convinced that uh, socialized health care is the answer to so many issues that we're seeing exasperated by the coronavirus and, you know, taking any sort of profit, Bill Gates, is behind it. Warren Buffett is behind it. George Soros is whatever. Pick your pick your poison. They're just even Jared Kushner is in it to make money. Well, let's just make it so that this vaccine is not a, is not making anybody a profit. Not that there's an enormous amount of trust in the government, but you know, I I feel like in particular with this vaccine, with how badly it's needed, with how many people will take it and need it that this might be the space for a government rollout. I think that's hard. I just don't know the answer because I think people distrust big corporations Mm -hmm. and a profit motive, and I think they just trust government. And I think we don't understand science well enough to have a lot of confidence in science. And it's that is a really terrible place. So we got to work on that together. Going to have to trust somebody. Yeah, we are going to have to work on that together. Restoring some trust somewhere is one of the most vital things that we can do. It is not being a sheep to be willing to listen to people in positions of authority with expertise who are telling you every day that they're trying really hard to save your life and to save the lives of the people that you care about. 
So we have got to work on restoring some trust. I think that global coordination is both scientifically comforting and I think it is, again, fodder for people to really seriously question where this thing is coming from. And so just know that like this is this is going to be a careful process getting all the way to that vaccine. And so between phase one, where things start to loosen, and that phase three, where we feel fine resuming normal activity in large groups of people, is phase two, where you see probably by geography and in the United States, probably state by state, but perhaps in smaller units than that where there are hot spots and things, a loosening of restrictions, continued social distancing measures, limiting gatherings to fewer than 50 people. I mean, we are a very long way from being able to go to a baseball game, much as it pains me. Um, and still a, still an ask that if you are highly at risk, you limit the time that you spend outside of your home. I just want to say, too, to that scientific literacy, you know, the people who spout conspiracy theories about either government involvement or corporate profit or whatever the case may be, you know, they're not really opposed to all science because they love to parade out their their one expert, the one scientist who's, you know, saying the rest of the establishment is just wrong, wrong, wrong. My dad sent me an article this morning about a mathematician in Israel who just says, well, it's going to run its course no matter what you do. Dude's not a virologist, not an epidemiologist, but he's a he's a doctor at a university. And so he's an expert. You know, that's kind of what bothers me. It's not all experts. It's just your experts. We like our experts, our doctors, be it Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil, who really need to sit down and be quiet. Um, that's I think that's what bugs me is it's not really all expertise, right? They love to parade out their own experts. I really loved this post that my friend Tim Jones wrote and shared on Facebook because I think this kind of gets to what those of us who are not conspiracy theorists can do as we encounter those arguments. He wrote, some say the earth is a sphere. Others, a lot of people, I might add, say the earth is flat. As someone who probably doesn't like to get political or take sides, let's say the truth is probably somewhere in between. Archaeolus, a teacher of Socrates, said a flat earth was depressed in the middle like a saucer. That compromise works for me. I'm now, one, safely in the middle, two, haven't take a si- taken a side, and three, have cited someone important to back up my claim. Now both sides are equally to blame and need to quit fighting. This is what passes for common sense these days. Sometimes an extreme position, earth is a sphere, based on the most current evidence, is the accurate position. What I've described above is called the middle ground fallacy, with an appeal to authority fallacy thrown in for good measure. Don't get sucked into these logical fallacies when it comes to science, politics, or any subject. The middle is not always correct, and often it isn't. Look for relevant facts. Check your biases. Think critically. Staking out the middle ground doesn't make you reasonable. When more rigorous research would point you another direction, it makes you lazy. And that really spoke to me. I feel that so strongly. Especially because I am guilty of loving to find a middle ground and really wanting everybody to be comfortable and being open to, yeah, there are problems with both sides' positions on something. But this is just correct that sometimes there is an inaccurate and an accurate position based on everything we know at a particular point in time. And I think I really feel that what Tim wrote here is what the vast majority of us are called to right now. To stop saying like, oh, yeah, you know, that you're, there's probably something in both of these pieces that appeals to me and like take a stand for what the available evidence tells us right now. Well, it will not be surprising at all to hear that I actually hate the middle ground. That's my <laughs> least favorite um, because I'm so, I'm like such an Enneagram one. And I'm just like, no, stake your claim. I have so like the the oh, the both their both sides are bad makes me want to set myself on fire. I think that that is I've never heard it described as a fallacy before. So I love that like deep in my heart. Because there is, there's this idea that, well, if you're in the middle, then you're probably the most reasonable and the most right. No, no. Sometimes there are real ethical lines to be drawn and they ain't in the middle. So, man, I need a T-shirt of that. I love that so much. Maybe a tattoo is in order. I don't even know. So in summary, 
<laughs> listen to the experts about this. And the experts are telling us we're just a long way from doing what we want to do in life. And that is hard, especially when they can't tell us what the end date is. But knowing that we are a long way helps me brace myself and prepare for being a long way. And so let's yep. just let's just be here knowing that. Well, listen, I love Brene Brown and her stealth expectations. Stealth expectations will ruin a day. It'll ruin a weekend. It'll ruin a relationship and most certainly will ruin a long period of time when you're dealing with something like this. I was really encouraged, um, and I think it might be a good place to end, with phase four um, from the American Enterprise Institute. They recommend a real effort to real rebuild our readiness for the next um, pandemic. I love the idea of establishing a national infectious disease forecasting center and moving away from this sort of decentralized government response and toward a coordinated responses. You know, maybe the way to build trust in all of these institutions is to see them come together, especially science and government. I think some of our institutions that have made the best impact, done the best work, and built the most trust with the American people are the alliances between science and government, be it NASA, the FDA, or whatever the case may be. I mean, I think that there are real um, positive examples for that sort of alliance. It's definitely, you know, the actual, the the national weather system that's, you know, come together and really saved lives. So I hope that we can look to a future where we can coordinate that kind of response where we can build trust in our institutions by building something that prepares us to handle this much better next time. If I could just tack on a PS to what you said so beautifully, I know we have a lot of faith leaders listening. You are so critical. You are so critical to helping people in the faith community establish trust in that kind of alliance Sarah was just describing. The faith leaders right now who are willing to say, I trust what the government is telling me to do. I trust what the scientists are telling us. You make an enormous difference because unfortunately, so many people of faith are the very people who are out there saying, I'm ready to get my hair cut. So thank you to those of you who are fighting the good fight on that. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do 
quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. A beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Sarah, is there anything on your mind outside of politics and COVID-19? Yeah, I really took a... a time out this weekend and spent almost the entirety of Sunday that I wasn't spring cleaning, reading Hidden Valley Road, um, the new Oprah Book Club pick. It's about this family in Colorado in the 60s that had 12 children, uh, 10 boys and two girls, which I probably just would have read a book about that. But the truly intense part of the story is that six of the boys were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so it follows the story of the family and really the role they played in medical research and better and more complex understanding of this particular aspect of mental health. And it just was so well written and so well done and so fascinating. And so that's what I did yesterday. And it was I highly recommend it. Well, I will take us all the way to the other end of the entertain yourself spectrum and say that I watched Making the Cut several episodes over the weekend. This is Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn's reimagining of Project Runway with an Amazon-level budget. And so it's really fun. If you're like, ugh, so many design competitions, I'm over it. I get that. But there is one reason to watch Making the Cut, and it is unique. And that reason is Naomi Campbell. Oh, I love her. She is so wacky. She is one of the judges, and I am obsessed with this woman. Okay, what she has to wear every episode, I'm like sitting on the edge of my seat. I can't wait to see her. And the way that she critiques people, it is the epitome of confidence. I've never seen anything like it. It is the most graceful confidence I've ever witnessed from someone. Because you can tell that she really cares about these designers, And she will also be brutally honest about how she feels about what they've made. And she'll say things like, you can do better than this. I want you to do better than this. I'm really disappointed that you're standing here right now. And her compliments, therefore, mean so much to these people. And I just am watching this like wishing that Naomi Campbell and I could be best friends. I never imagined it in my life, but I think she's amazing on this show. And it completely differentiates it from all the other versions of this. I've liked lots of people who sit in these positions, but she there is something captivating about her. Well, listen. Fame is a struggle. I believe this to be true. Fame is a struggle, and much like any struggle or suffering in a person's life, it can transform you. It can make you harden, or it can sort of make you open up and sort of embrace who you are, embrace what life has to offer. Naomi Campbell has been extraordinarily famous and just extraordinarily beautiful for a very long time on a level that I think is hard to comprehend, especially because her fame is so global. Um, And so just when you operate at that level for a long time and you're just, you know, are Amazonian level gorgeous, like it can make you terrible, which I think she's had her moments. Let's be honest. Over the course of her life, she's exhibited some not awesome behaviors, or it can make you awesome if you just sort of lean into who you are. I see this in Celine Dion, and I love it. So, yeah, I mean, I think she's great. I'm not surprised at all that she's good in that that sort of venue. The other thing I've been thinking about, especially as I continue crisis schooling my children, is Earth Day. Tomorrow, as you're listening on Tuesday, tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. 
So we uh, today made a representation of our carbon footprints by putting finger paint on our feet and putting them on a paper and writing down all kinds of ways that we can reduce our carbon footprints. Was this a secret project for me to try to instill in them that they need to turn lights off when they leave a room? Perhaps it was, but it Mm. still served its purpose. We watched a really cute video from Ted about sea lions and about how global warming is affecting sea lions. Um, So we're going to do lots of activities around here for Earth Day. And it's a weird time for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day because global carbon emissions are expected to drop by 5.5% in 2020. Unplanned, huge, significant, still really not enough to catch up with the kind of goals that we need to set around the environment. But it's just, it's a really um, disjointed thing to kind of process. We also have lots of Earth Day activities planned for tomorrow because I was really concerned one day when we were talking about climate change Um, or global warming with Amos, and he said, oh, I thought it was just about littering. You know, and Earth Day came about because they, the the organizer in particular, really wanted to push back on the idea that, like, oh, if we just pick up after ourselves, we're doing all we can do. And I thought, man, that message is still so strong because it's easy, right? Just pick up after yourself. And that's all we need to do. And the real lessons and imperatives of global warming are much more difficult. And so we are going to spend some time on Wednesday really talking through the impact of our choices and 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 doing some Earth Day activities much along the same lines. I think that's it's it's really important. It's a really good opportunity when we're all home with our kids to to talk about that. My kids are really captivated by littering, too. And I think this is like the crux of the whole deal with climate change. People cannot understand what the big deal is if they didn't intend something awful. We talk about this mm-hmm. with racism all the time, too. If you didn't intend it your, yep. or the Me Too movement, if you didn't intend it, then how could it hurt? And we've got to reverse that thinking to solve all of our major problems. A lot of what Jane and I have been talking about, I did a nightly nuance on the Trump administration's rollback of certain environmental regulations last week. And we spent a bunch of time talking about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act because the administration is saying, basically, if you don't intend to kill a bird, you shouldn't be accountable under this act. But the vast majority of birds are killed through activity that's perfectly legal done in a careless way. And so Jane and I were talking about, and you should have seen her face when I said this, if this rollback happens, then an individual who shoots one bird will be accountable under the act. But an oil spill that kills hundreds of thousands, maybe a million birds, will not be punishable under the act because they didn't mean to. And she got that so quickly But we just have a really hard time. If we didn't intend something bad, how could something bad result from it? Anyway, I thought it would be really fun to end with some sound from the first Earth Day. EarthDay.org has an amazing clip of Walter Cronkite talking about it. And something about this was so deeply beautiful and comforting to me. And also a real wake-up call that 50 years ago, this is what Walter Cronkite had to say. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty, the fouled skies, the filthy waters, the littered earth. As a demonstration, its success was mixed, beyond expectations here, far below there. No one now can know exactly how many took part. We do have an idea how many planned participation. Student groups in 2,000 colleges and 10,000 lower schools. Citizen groups in 2,000 communities. By one measurement, Earth Day failed. It did not unite. It did attract that broad cross-section of America its sponsors wanted. Not quite. Its demonstrators were predominantly young, predominantly white, predominantly anti-Nixon. Often its protests appeared frivolous. It's protesters curiously carefree. Yet the gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die. So thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears tomorrow over on our other podcast, The Nuance Life. 
And until we see you again, either here, Patreon, or on Instagram, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff. Tim Miller, Martha Branitsky, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Amy Whited, and Allie Edwards. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.